Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For the show, we usually have two co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sagona, and Sean Rumkunis, who is in his little Google box right across from me. Sean and I believe that many people have a playlist that make their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Here's a musical quote for today based off the person who we are going to be talking about. The quote is, in order to create, there must be a dynamic force. And what force is more potent than love? Igor Stravinsky. Today we will sit down with four time, AKA platinum guest and awesome human slash DMA clarinetist, Valerie Nutzolo. And today we will talk about L'Histoire du Soldat, or The Soldier's Tale, which is a theatrical work to be read, played, and danced by three actors and one or several dancers accompanied by a septet of instruments conceived by Igor Stravinsky and Swiss writer C.F. Ramutz. The piece was based on a Russian folktale drawn from the collection of Alexander Afasanyev called The Runaway Soldier and the Devil. The libretto relates the parable of a soldier who trades his fiddle to the devil in return for an unlimited economic gain. The music scored for a septet of violin, double bass, clarinet, bassoon, cornet, soldier, the devil, and a narrator, who also takes on the roles of minor characters. A dancer plays the non-speaking role of the princess, and there may also be an additional ensemble dancers. The original French text by Ramutz has been translated into English by Michael Flanders and Kitty Black, and into German by Hans Reinhardt. A full performance of L'Histoire du Soldat takes about an hour. The music is rife with changing time signatures. For this reason, it is commonly performed with a conductor, though some ensembles have elected to perform the piece without one. The work was premiered in Lausanne on September 28, 1918, conducted by Ernest Honorset. The British conductor, Edward Clark, was a friend and champion of Stravinsky and a former assistant conductor to Anerset at the Ballet Russes. He conducted the British premiere of the L'Histoire du Soldat in 1926 in Newcastle upon Tyne and gave three further fully staged performances in London in July 27, 1927. Stravinsky was assisted greatly in the production of the work by the Swiss philanthropist Werner Reinhardt. Reinhardt sponsored a largely underwrote the premiere. In gratitude, Stravinsky dedicated the work to Reinhardt and gave him the original manuscript. Reinhardt continued his support of Stravinsky's work in 1919 by funding a series of concerts of his recent chamber music. These included a concert suite of five numbers from Soldier's Tale arranged for clarinet, violin, and piano, which was a nod to Reinhardt who is regarded as an excellent amateur clarinetist. The suite was performed on November 8, 1919 in Lausanne, long before the better-known suite for the seven original performers became known. And without any further ado, let's welcome back our friend and yours, Valerie Nizzullo.
Hello, everybody. I'm Val. I am not the host, but since it's my fourth time back, they're letting me pretend I am and open this up for you today. <laughs> so before we get going, talking about Soldier's Tale, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach us, and you will find our social media and other ways that you can contribute. So now that we did that, um, I hope I did well opening it. Let's talk about the Soldier's Tale a little bit. Sean and I both performed this piece when we were in our masters at Ithaca College, but we performed it with different ensembles. And actually, Sean, I don't know if you know this, but I performed it with different text. I performed it with uh, Kurt Vonnegut's text. Mm, okay. So that was interesting. It's a much darker story <laughs> than the original um, <laughs> story is. How much darker? And can you go than what's already written? Yeah, it, well, yeah, I agree. What's written is pretty dark, but Kurt Vonnegut did this interview and was kind of like, yeah, I didn't think that the music really fit it because, you know, he's kind of always a critic, forever a critic. But he used the story of Eddie Slovic, um, who I didn't know about him, actually, until I performed The Soldier's Tale, but apparently he's a pretty... Um, kind of significant historical figure because he was the last soldier that was actually executed for like abandoning the US Army during World War II. Mm -hmm. And so it's that story. And it's kind of wild, but it, it really fits with the music. You have to flip, I can't quite remember because it's been a little while, um, but you have to flip the order of some of the movements in order for it to make sense. But yeah, for I guess those those who didn't know, that that exists, that's out there. Kurt Vonnegut has a text for this that's a bit of a different story. I'm not sure if you would agree with me on this, but there are some really good recordings and then there are some really bad recordings out there. I would um, agree. Of this piece and uh, Hunter, I'm not sure if you know, there's a really great recording of Christopher Lee. Do we all oh, know, I didn't Christopher know that. Lee? Christopher Lee? I, I did, know Christopher yes. Lee. I did not know that there was a recording of his. There is a recording of Christopher Lee, the actor, who has now passed away, um, RIP, but um, there is a really great recording of him doing it. It doesn't sound like Sauron or any sort of like very intense, you know, uh, creature or any character he's ever played. Maybe the dentist from, you know. Probably uh, in the Chocolate Factory. Probably in the Chocolate Factory. Thank you, Hunter. He's um, also the great Saruman the White. That's right. You know, I. He I, is. I, I, I think that those those roles in my mind, I mean, those really play into the way he sounds as the narrator. Um, but I have to say, you know, when I'm looking at the first movement, I love this opening because I feel like it describes the character of the soldier so well. Mm -hmm. because, yeah. Because he carries himself in such a way that you can already know he's a very awkward person. Yeah, the, this whole thing is a bit of a, it, it's definitely a march. It's obvious we're about a soldier here, but there's almost this underlying darkness behind it. Um, yeah, I guess that's the easiest way that I can describe it. I love this opening, too, for that reason. It's a march, but it's a, it's a fearful and hesitant march. Right. Why start on the upbeat of a 16th note? I really don't get that. 
Stravinsky is my best answer. I, that's what I would say. I mean, I, honestly, I think that he just kind of does that. Stravinsky loves to displace bar lines and put things where it looks like they don't belong, but it's exactly where they belong. But I think he does that in his music for a reason. I think he does that to just add to the message of confusion that he wants to to bring out, you know, on top of everything else he's trying to say. Yeah. Hunter, what did I say about Stravinsky? Doesn't give an F, I believe, were your exact words. Uh, <laughs> he does not. He doesn't care at all. Hunter, what are your thoughts about the opening? Well, first thing that strikes me is the, or the orchestration that he chooses for this. So it's, you know, uh, I was going to say it's a clarinet, but I think we ran into that problem last time. So I'm going to say it's uh, a clarinet in A and then bassoon. Clarinet in La. Exactly, clarinet in La. And then bassoon, horn in La trombone, <laughs> violin, uh, contrabass, and drums. And, you know, it's it's such a strange and somewhat thin mix. Like, I mean, it, it's not really a rich orchestration. There's a lot of hollow sound that I find. Um, it, you know, it just, it, it does, it's not Mahler. I mean, it's not striking as this massively huge sound that comes out every time they play. Everyone, have their own part but why i i mean have with you guys having played the piece i mean i've heard it but with you guys having played it why do you think he chose these particular instruments because there's no there's no flute there's no cello there's no viola there's no um what else does he not have here so obviously well you could argue saxophone at this period in history but um no french horns what do we think I'm going to throw my hat in the ring, and I think that this might actually be the sounds of an early, early uh, brass band, or the culmination of a, of a group of instruments that would create a band, you know? Okay. Yeah. It, it certainly could be, and you're right. It's definitely not any kind of traditional ensemble, you know? It's oh, not, not like a wind quintet, because they, you know, it's <laughs> not anything traditional. I wonder, because this being from... 1882 you know i i wonder if it's something like this is what he these are the instruments that he had at his disposal or these are the people that were willing to commission him for something you, you know <laughs> so the, he said i gotta like, work with what i got yeah well it's funny because people do that with like that that messian quartet for the end of time for instance and it's like they don't realize that the it's written for the instruments it's written for simply because those are the ones that like he, that he had. Um, so I don't know. I'd have to look into that. But you're right. It's definitely not a traditional ensemble. I think that Stravinsky probably welcomed it though, because mm -hmm. he just loves to be different, and he like you said he does not care. So I think he probably welcomed it. He probably welcomed the most different and unique sound that he could find, mm -hmm. whatever the reason, you know. Yeah. And for those listeners who are wondering what that reference to care the F about, you have to go to my Stravinsky episode and hear Hunter ha having me ask Hunter the same question maybe about three or four times in the, in the same amount of time. Um, I want to talk about the musical more and say that the beginning of the piece also is the end of the piece. Yes, that's true. That's right. Why is that? Do we really want to make the whole, does that just wrap the character as a whole? Or do we want to say that because it starts the same way, it ends the same way, so we could have sort of see sort of a similarity between the two? Um, what are we going to talk about? 
Hmm. Well, I guess it's a, an idea of everything coming full circle, even though I wouldn't necessarily say it has a happy ending. Hmm. Um, but for a little while, the soldier uh, talked about thinks that the ending's happy until he realizes that he's been duped all over again, you know? So it could be kind of a, not, I don't want to say mockery. like, a, yeah, I don't, I don't know if maybe mockery or like a false, a false um, representation of what's going on. But I think it's a very clever way to make all the music come full circle. It's like he's right back where he started, but he's not at the same time, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, if you guys don't recognize the last chord, it is an open chord. A, C, G, but no E. Mm. Boom, boom, you know? Yeah. Keeps at the end. So in a way, he wants us to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't say there's any resolution really throughout mm -hmm. the entire piece. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there is a resolution, which is certainly, um, you know, it goes with the story. There's really never a resolution to anything. It seems like the more he digs, the the harder life gets for him. Yeah. And I wrote down in big words, there is just so much to love about this movement because it goes from big chamber music moments to small chamber music moments. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Especially right in the middle, in the thick of all those crazy It is, um, what do we want to make sense of that, guys? Do you want to talk about that a little more, that middle section? Is that starting at 10? Ooh, starting at 10. Rehearsal 10, that is correct. Yeah, what do we think about that? Well, as a clarinetist, and I'm sure Valerie will agree, that's just she does, stupid. whatever you're going to say. Yeah, she does agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's just stupid. Anything over the over the D in that register, more than two bars in a row, it, it, it shouldn't exist. Give it to the flutes. And if the flute's not in it, put the flute in it. <laughs> if the flute's not in it, put the flute in it. That's right. Give, give me an E-flat clarinet. <laughs> but that, yeah, yeah, that I think it's like, there's so much angst at Rehearsal 10. And... I realize that the listeners aren't looking at the score, but this sounds congrats way simpler than it looks. Yeah, congrats if you are, exactly. But this sounds <laughs> way simpler than it looks. If you just listen to it and you don't look at this whole mess that is the score, you're like, oh, okay, I can hum along to this. This is a pretty memorable melody. I can even clap along. But then you look at the score, you're like, hold on. Because everything is just so displaced all the time. And I think that's, again, I think that's on purpose. I think that's on purpose to show the all the conflict that this character of the soldier is going to going through, um, being tempted by the devil and giving in and learning his lesson and all that. Uh, but yeah, the registers that the instruments are written in, I think, mm -hmm. just add to it, add to the climax of the whole thing. He clearly didn't play clarinet. He clearly didn't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Also, we talked about that once mood. before. What? It took me like weeks to figure out fingerings for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I was performing, it took me a very long time. Because you're like, how many lines is that? Yeah. 
Yeah, kind of like, your line. Can we talk a little bit about the spoken word too? A little bit the mm -hmm. the affect of why someone's not singing, but the affect of of reading rhythmic words. Well, One I think favorite. it just. Go, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I was going to say, I think it just um, adds to the intensity. There's something about speaking it that makes it a lot more serious than mm. when you're singing it. And of course, there's a way to sing very seriously. But like, I almost feel like this would turn into an opera if, because <laughs> if, you've got the tragic, you've got all the formula. You've got the tragic story, the singers, and the theater. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, it's a weird opera, but I almost feel like it would turn too much into a opera where it's about only the music. And I really think that you focus on the text more if someone's like wagging their finger at you and speaking it very sternly at you. So I think it's to just bring out how serious the story is or how much they want to emphasize the text. Right. Yeah, I agree. And uh, let's talk about the next movement, which is the air yeah. by a stream. Uh, Val, you said it perfectly from the last movement. I love how simple this movement sounds. Mm -hmm. But it is so freaking complicated. Yeah, this thing could have been in 2-4 for most of the time. <laughs> but it's not. And not. <laughs> why should it be? Why should it be? <laughs> but it sounds, really, if, if you just listen to this, you can hum along, you're like, oh, this is kind of pretty, and, but then you look at the score and it's considerably different. And maybe the reason why I think it's simple is that the bass never changes, ever. Boom, 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 right? Those four pitches pretty much the whole time. Maybe a little bit of exaggeration on different notes, but those pretty much stay the same throughout most of this piece. What are your thoughts on that versus what the violin actually has to do? I think that... At a glance, it, well, the violin's life is very hard in this movement. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that at a glance, it looks like, okay, we've got running eighth notes. I have something to keep time. And, and actually, it just makes it very confusing. I think it almost would have been simpler if Stravinsky just kind of wrote vamp and then had the yeah. violin, you know, <laughs> play, play above it. Because it is really tricky on the violinist despite having that running bass line constantly but that I believe is pretty typical of Stravinsky I think he loves in whatever words even in other movements of this piece I've noticed that he loves that um, ostinato straight bass line and just to mm -hmm. do whatever in the world he wants to above that so I think that's that's definitely um, a signature of his yeah and I, I also like this Oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, 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 go. Oh, no, all I was going to say was you mentioned, you know, the ostinato pattern. Um, when done in a, in a manner like this, it almost creates like a, a drone where it's not just, it's filling out the empty sound in a place that otherwise would have had no sound. And then not that nobody cares what's going on on top because that's obviously the movement, but I feel like the atmosphere that the ostinato creates is almost more important than whatever else is going on. Because mm. it it adds atmosphere, ambiance, the emotion behind whatever's happening. That's true. It's that underlying 
baseline. Yeah, the thing that's actually driving everything forward. Yeah, that's right. true. And I really think that this melody that just keeps getting warped over and over again, this melody that's found in Rehearsal 5 via bar later, it's just so simple. But like you said, Val, he warps it over time, and he changes it to to just um, to different just sounds. And he, he, he is so successful with that. Yeah. Um, the, the craft of melodies and his, his, his brain is just incredible. How does he do it? Yeah, he certainly has a lot of um, creativity with the melodies. And I think, I guess another signature of his is he gives everybody a unique melody and then just kind of goes, you know, shifts it. <laughs> it completely takes one and moves it back two beats, takes the second one, moves it ahead two beats. And it's almost like everybody's doing everybody's saying their own thing, but they're all talking over each other. That's what uh, number five looks like to me. Everybody's making a statement, but they're all not quite sure where to begin, and they're all talking over each other. Right. I feel like that is a trait of a very good composer. Because I agree, he, yeah. he still knows where the line is going, but he's still able to showcase the true melody in a way. Just like Bernstein, uh, Hunter would maybe agree with me with um, Into the Woods with Stephen uh -huh. Sondheim. Uh, I'm not sure if you can agree with that, but I mean, all these 20th century techniques have come from their past teachers. Like Leonard Bernstein had wrote a lot of really intense music that led up to that. And I believe that one of um, Sondheim's teachers was a 20th century composer. Um, I don't think it was Penderecki or something like that, but I know that one of his former teachers was really involved with 20th century music, and Stravinsky being at the crux of really great orchestral writing at the time, and if I can say it again, he doesn't end on a tonic note, he just leaves it open again, mm -hmm. you know? Why yeah, and it's like, leave it open? yeah, it's like considering, uh, the music in where Stravinsky was growing up and what he was exposed to and and the kinds of people that he was studying with and the kinds of composition he was studying, there's no way it's not on purpose that he leaves it open. You know, it's like everything that he learned said not to do that. And so there's there's no way at all, there's no explanation for that being anything other than on purpose. And I think that it's it's really to just emphasize the text. I think this whole thing is about the story. And he's a little bit unique in that, I mean, not unique anymore, but for the time, he is a little bit unique in that he's using the music to support the text rather than he's writing a story to fill in this, you know, brilliant piece he's written. No, he, he wants the music to support the text rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And that leads us to the next movement, which is the pastoral. And I believe that this movement really acts as the curse or the spell that the devil puts on the soldier. Mm -hmm. uh, thoughts from my friend Hunter over there. So the first thing I noted about this particular movement was that it's really the first time we see any, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? First time we see any sort of, um, 
extended use of long tones at all in this piece so far. Everything has been very either staccatoed or uh, short um, in basically every part. Mm -hmm. This is the first time we see any sort of constant use of longer drawn out tones, slurs, mm -hmm. uh, or not slurs, ties. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it gives it right off the bat that gives it a sense of uh, calm, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's it's just sustained. There's There's movement, but it's not happening as often, which automatically now makes you calmer. Right. And yeah. I, oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. You can finish your thought. <laughs> no, all I was going to say to to add to that, he it's in three four, and Sean and I were just talking about yesterday or or whenever we were talking about it. Um, three four in box time because we were talking about a box piece. Obviously, was the sacred time and sort of. All throughout history, 3-4 has been the quote-unquote sacred time. So, you know, not that he's trying to be religious about it at all, but it is a piece that involves the devil, and this is the pastoral section. Therefore, it could be some sort of allusion back to the, like, the holy aspect. I would I would uh, definitely think it is. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, again, I think Stravinsky is one of those composers that does nothing by accident, including a time yeah. signature. And this, in terms of like the rhythm, this is as simple as we're gonna get. And in terms yeah. of the ensemble and all that, this is as simple as we're gonna get. But if you look at like the harmonies and the melodies chosen and everything, there's kind of an underlying, it's very calm, but it's, it's a questioning, kind of calm mm. you know i wouldn't call it relaxing i wouldn't call it relaxing but it's like the devil is convincing him in this moment that um you know take take it's a book right it's like mm. take this book of of knowledge or, or whatever it was it's like take this book and it'll benefit you and it seems like a really good idea but there's that little voice in the back of the soldier's head saying um and i think that's what the the notes are and then everything else is um you know the devil the devil saying yeah this is a great idea <laughs> yeah it's like the lullaby putting him into a trance Yes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You nailed it, Hunter. I, I really think that there's a lot of, um, like you said, there's a lot of sustained parts of it. Um, and again, we really don't get a clear resolution. You know? There's a shot. He, he ends on a perfect fourth, right? Yeah. That is as striking as it'll ever be. I've never heard a piece end on a perfect fourth before which is really intriguing, and I, I, I love this, and, and I wrote, here, here, here's what I wrote, here's my thought process. I wrote, the pain, but it is ugly yet so beautiful, the sign of the best intention of his writing, the love of the pastoral peace, although the pain of desire. And I wrote- Why do I feel like you just quoted Shakespeare? Wow. Hunter. <laughs> that I was kind of beautiful. <laughs> you know, I, mean? I feel like he was going to get up there and say, who for art thou? You know? <laughs> and then I wrote, ugh, so good. That was not Shakespeare. That was not Shakespeare. Yes, right. no, 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 yeah. And I, if I can get back to that idea of um, desire, and because in this movement, the soldier is giving up something he wants 
to enjoy life's sweet pleasures, you know? Uh -huh. He doesn't know it yet, but he's going to die. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> spoiler um, after you've said it. After I said it, sorry. Um, but, but that's a really great point, and I, I think uh, there's a lot of just, like, mysticism in it. And there's a lot of great issues with his writing because we find these moments where he's just kind of like, and I said this to Hunter the other day when we were talking about Brandenburg, but great composers also know how to elaborate through phrases and know how to elaborate through line um, and try to build certain lines on top of one another. Especially, Hunter, we talked about that oboe line at the end of the second movement of Brandenburg 1. I'm not sure if you can recognize that, Val. But there's this awesome line in that moment that just kind of just sh sheds light on this like huge C-sharp diminished chord. And then that same vein, let's look at another chord that, that I'm like, <laughs> one of my favorite moments in this is, is kind of right at the end where like it, it, it gets really, really, really close to one another, the clarinet and the um, bassoon are sort of playing in really close proximity of another, and then they just end. And then, of course, um, uh, the bassoon part at the top is getting really close to a resolution, but he then just ends it on a perfect fourth, you know? Almost the, uh, the way of saying, like, you know what? No, you don't get it just yet. You have to earn it, you know? And I think that's something that, that's with his music where you don't always say, oh, okay, this is what I understand. But it's just because of the, the context of the music, we don't get it right away. So, ugh, oh my goodness. Great. <laughs> I was telling, yeah, I was, I was telling agree with that. and I was saying to Hunter, like, I am going to be the biggest nerd in this podcast because it is just, it is so good and it's so... It, it, it's so ugly, but it, it, there's, and we even talked about that when we talked about this, Hunter, and the, and the other podcast about how ugly doesn't always mean not beautiful. There are beautiful <laughs> moments in ugliness that we might not appreciate, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Technically, you know, isn't ugly the absence of beauty? Mm, Technically, <laughs> I'll even take it a step further here and sure. say that it it's so clearly yes, it's it's ugly, you know, but it's so clearly supposed to be, and it, it's kind of it's very reflective on if you make a deal with the devil, it's always gonna go you know, South, whether it's the uh -huh. real devil and you believe in him or whether it's like you're watching any movie about the main character who makes a deal with the devil, it seems to never work for anybody. So, right. you know, it, it, and I think this music just does a brilliant job of, of bringing that out. Right, right. I believe that entirely. Although we get something completely different in the next mm -hmm. movement, which is the Royal March. Uh, I wrote in huge quotes, so fun, with an exclamation point. And the writing for the trumpet is awesome in this section. I love it because... Yeah, this is the trumpet one, I remember. <laughs> ah, it's awesome. Hunter, talk to me about it. What's up? So my observations for this one were... I sort of had two major ones, which was that mm -hmm. the feeling is it's very off kilter. Like obviously that could pretty much describe the whole piece, but 
this movement in particular, it's a march, yet it's very different from the first march. And I can't help but wonder if it was intentionally written to be nothing like it. But also, mm. he cut, he titled it Royal March for a reason, and I realize that's, you know, plot purposes. Okay. But Stravinsky, I mean, he was Russian, obviously, and I can't help but wonder if there was some sort of, like, anti-royalist sentiments when he was writing this, because... It almost sounds like, you know, this is not what you would expect of as a royal march. It wasn't what Bach was writing when he was um, writing for the um, for the Margrave. Right. That was more <laughs> respectful. This this sounds very, almost like they're making fun of royalty. Right, almost uh, not even like a middle finger, but just kind of like a stick up the nose kind of thing. Yeah, that's sort yeah. of the sense I get from it. I don't know his I don't know his political beliefs, what he said during his lifetime, but knowing when he lived in Russia, um mm -hmm. was obviously a, a very tumultuous time period. Yeah. And that's just the first thing that sort of came to mind. Right. Um uh, that and the fact that it was different from the first one. Val, there are some really great moments for each individual instrument. Break down to me what are your favorite moments from this particular movement? Well, let's see. There are, you're right, there are great moments from um, each individual instrument that's featured here. Not the whole ensemble is featured. Mm -hmm. in, but I like that you've got, again, the bass doing that same exact ostinato thing, the violin pretty much doing the same thing. And then you have, um, you know, the rest of the instruments are kind of, it, it's kind of like we were talking about a couple of movements ago where everybody has something to say and they all kind of want to say it at the same time and they're all just trying to get their point across so every single instrument has a theme here it's almost i mean it's nothing like peter and the wolf but it's almost peter and the wolf every instrument has a, a theme here and you right. the violin is always going to play what the violin's going to play the bass is always going to play the ostinato thing you know the trumpet's always going to do what the trumpet's going to do mm -hmm. and I, I think that that that's really cool it's a lot of people talking over each other and i, I like what you said too about the march um being kind of a joke i don't not like a mean-spirited joke but i think yeah the, this whole thing is kind of in jest of a royal march. Mm -hmm. Val, yeah. can I pull your attention sort of a... to uh, rehearsal eight, real quick? Yeah. Of this Definitely. particular movement, I love the. I love that in the span of maybe like two seconds, he plays the whole range of the clarinet. Yeah, that it's literally two seconds. If you're the clarinet player, it feels like a lot less <laughs> than that. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very uh, interrupting thing, and you know it's tricky. But I gotta say that that's a lot of fun to you know, just do. My old man moment almost feels like it comes from rehearsal number nine. You guys get that? Rehearsal <laughs> you know, it's very grumpy. Yeah, do you agree with, that? with Sean as the grandfather. <laughs> and get off my lawn moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. Ugh, that's awesome. And look at rehearsal 14. Please look at rehearsal 14. And scream at Travinsky if you need to. <laughs> Going to 14. Oh, yeah, that thing. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. See, that just seems cruel and unusual. 
that's the clarinet like everybody's still talking over each other and then the clarinet's like excuse me hello yeah. And the clarinet kind of shrieks so that you <laughs> literally shrieks so that you are paying attention to it. And I, I want to pull your attention to the, 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 the ending in the beginning again because it is as similar to the beginning of the soldiers' march in a way where we get this off-beated, like, he could have kept it in one, one regular time signature, but no, he's, he's Stravinsky, he has to put it in different time signatures, and it just still ends up being fine. You know? Yeah, yeah. He he definitely Stravinsky'd this whole thing. Um, <laughs> it's another verb to Stravinsky. Yeah. He definitely Stravinsky'd this whole thing. Stravinsky verb to displace every single bar line <laughs> that you possibly can. <laughs> I, um, I absolutely love this movie because it's so unique from other movements. And Hunter, you said it perfectly that it describes. The, uh, the angsty version of, of what we believe a king should be like, you know? Mm -hmm. Almost plays around with that idea. Um, and, of course, we're going to hit this fifth movement, which is a little concert piece. <laughs> I love this little concert piece because it is chock full of nuggets for referencing past material. Yeah, the, oh, the cute little piece. This is almost like the intermission music, you know? The uh, <laughs> previously on Soldier's Tale kind of that's that's what I always think of for this. <laughs> right, I, I it, it's incredible. Why does he do it? Why does he put a, a random mini concert in the middle of the second act? <laughs> wake people up. To wake people up. Thank you, Hunter. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, your thoughts, guys. I I I've talked too much during this first half. Tell me, tell me what you think. Maybe to emphasize the ending, because like you said, this is a whole lot of little nuggets of what stuff we've already heard before. And so maybe it's like, you know, brings us to a point, mm -hmm. like brings us to a cliffhanger. And then rather than it kind of answering the questions and, and wrapping the thing up, he's going to build more tension by doing a quick synopsis before we have the ending. Right. <laughs> so I, I think that's uh, mainly the purpose of this. And, you know, it's not related to, but I think that's why they chose to go with this as well, the way he wrote it. Hmm. Hunter, your thoughts? I think we should resurrect him and ask him. Um, <laughs> that sounds impossible, uh, Hunter. It does, doesn't it? But you never know. Power yeah. of music. Um, and if he plays music so badly, he'll rise from the grave just to scold us. Yeah. Well, Valerie said he likes to critique everything. <laughs> um, you know, so... Oh, go ahead. No, I just wanted to say there's a really funny story um, that someone told me once that there was a teacher that went up to uh, Stravinsky and he said, oh, wow, it is so great to meet you and uh, your work is absolutely amazing. And Stravinsky just said, I know. He just walked <laughs> <laughs> Humble as all composers. That is sounds absolutely right. correct. That sounds absolutely correct. Um, this one doesn't really have a lot of context, but we do get a lot of different sort of themes coming back in and out, and uh, you have to go check it out yourself because it is one to check out. Um, it's really cute. It, it's really cute. I think it, it, it just fits right. I think it just fits perfectly into a, a nice box. And uh, speaking of boxes, uh, Hunter, in that box over there, 
Um, I need you to uh, get your money's worth today, and I think I need you to read our handles. Ah, uh, yes. Let us go read the handles as opposed to reading the Stravinsky's. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was such a bad that was, that was pretty. That was pretty good. Thank you. I try. Uh, this is what happens when you work with kids all day. Um, <laughs> their humor starts to rub off on you. All right, so... Before we take a quick break, we'd like you to know that our handles on social media, should you be so inclined to follow us, are on Twitter, at MusicSpeaks underscore pod, on Instagram, MusicSpeaks underscore podcast, Facebook, MusicSpeaks podcast, TikTok, at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast, and on YouTube, MusicSpeaks podcast. So those are those. Go check out if you are tech savvy. And if you're not, you can go and fumble your way through and try and find it like I would do. And we will be right back with the rest of Soldier's Tale and Val. And a word from our sponsor, Anchor. Yes. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Val again. They are also letting me take us out of the break. So this has been a lot of fun. Um, we are up to the sixth movement, the three dances, the tango, waltz, and a ragtime, which is essentially a violin concerto. This is the biggest movement for the violin. Um, I love this movement a lot, but I would love to hear you guys' thoughts on it as well. Mm -hmm. Hunter, you want to take this one? Sure, I'll go. Um, so it's an odd set of dances that, that he chooses to do here. And it puzzles me as to why, because knowing his background, which is obviously Russian, the waltz makes sense, but I don't know where, you know, the other two, maybe I would have expected a, a trepak or a mazurka or maybe even a polka, but instead he chooses tango. So that's way out there. And then other side of the world and then ragtime, which I don't really get ragtime from that section at all, so I maybe I'm just missing the point. So the the piece, or not the piece, the section confused me. So I'll be interested to hear what you both have to say about it, being the Stravinskyites that you are. <laughs> you know, I have to start by saying the reason why he put a tango in there is because it adds to the sexy slash alluring sound that that you think of when you think of a tango, you know? And the violin almost plays both the, the, the male and the female parts in a way, like both dancing with one another. You have the, um, again, you have the, uh, you have some percussion, boom, dee -dee, boom, boom, right? But mm -hmm. the, the two just kind of work together and it's just kind of like, it's very raw and um, very exposed. Like you were saying, especially it's like a violin concerto, but it just kind of like it really works really well, and it just it's very experimental. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I would think so too. And I would wonder, or I have wondered, if mm -hmm. um, this is by design, like because mm -hmm. of the plot. So the tango, like you said, it's very sexy. It's very alluring. It's very. Um, it, it wants to draw you in, much like the devil was trying to convince the soldier that this was a very good idea to make a deal with him and to give up his heart's desires was a very good idea. And I think that a tango is a pretty good 
musical tool to bring that across because it mm. is something that is really meant to kind of captivate all of your attention. And then we go into a waltz, which is the actual dance with the devil, the actual process of the soldier kind of taking the deal. And it's fine. Everything's going great. And then we get to a ragtime where the whole point is the beats all over the place of a ragtime. Mm. And I think that's kind of his, wait a minute, you know, what, what have I done? Right. Part. And so I have often wondered, I don't know for sure, um, but I have often wondered when listening to this and when I performed it, if the order of these three dances is on purpose because of that. Or maybe I mean, that's how I hear it. I mean, it definitely makes sense from a plot standpoint. Um, but I, I mean, I obviously, like you said, you don't know exactly what he was thinking, but it sounds right to me. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess that's the thing is we don't know exactly what he was thinking. As far as I know, there's no information to confirm that. But I guess, I guess what it means to me and how I would take it is that that makes the most sense in my mind, where the tango is the devil luring him in, the waltz is the agreement, and the ragtime is the what have I done. Mm -hmm. Something else that struck me about the about the waltz. Oh, sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was uh, I was finished. I couldn't. It just was like lagging. Um, oh. So much. What's weird is that the you know a waltz is obviously usually heavily on one, um, but his waltz seems to be a lot of emphasis on two and three. So it still gives you that waltz feeling. You imply the one, but a lot of times looking at it, you rest on on one. I'm trying to look at the trying to look at the score here where the waltz mm -hmm. section is, um, but it just it just seems to me like it's a little bit off kilter. Uh, you're not not your traditional waltz. Not that anything he does is traditional. So, yeah, at this point, I kind of expect uh, nothing less. So a waltz with the emphasis on the weak beat <laughs> is, right. is exactly what I would expect from Stravinsky writing a waltz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's just something that that struck me, Sean. I love the evolution of dance too. So we go from primal to societal to maybe even the future in a way. So we're we're almost seeing the passage of time between these all these different kinds of dances. And Hunter, I know you're you're right about not really seeing the ragtime. It really isn't there, but it's more about the rhythmic integrity that makes it a ragtime. You know, so in my mind, when I see these three dances laid out, it just looks like there's a sort of a passage of time from early to middle to future in a way that we're looking at. We're looking towards the future and those terms uh, tango, very rudimentary, you know, and, and it could have been a dance that, you know, that people learn from animals, you know, very, very primal. The sense of a waltz, very um, uh, high-class society. You know, when we think uh -huh. of waltzes, we think of Strauss Jr. We think about the Danube waltz, uh -huh. and and uh, but this particular waltz doesn't have those sort of intricacies. It has, you know, it has those very like one of my favorite moments in this waltz is when the um, the violin goes you know, and it, it, it's almost like there's moments where you can hear it sound like a waltz, but then you hear it sound like Stravinsky, you know? Where he right. wrote a waltz, and then he's like, eh, I'm going to do this instead. And it goes... Eh, I think that's the best way to put it. 
Right. Yeah. And then you get back to the ragtime, and it's just really funky and really fast and kind of ferocious, you know? But then, yeah. here's another question. Does he leave it open at the end, or does he leave it, um, like, is there a clear ending? Nothing like nothing of his seems like a clear ending to me. <laughs> That's I, I wouldn't say that it is a clear ending. I wouldn't say that. Um, I don't know. Even right down to the story in this piece, I wouldn't say that there's a very clear ending. And even with the dances, I, I wouldn't say that any of the three of them have a clear ending. I think they are all rather open. Right. Just look at the just look at the last line. Right. Hello. Yeah. What is and, that? Right, and then the audience is like, "Do we clap? Do we? What? What is this?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it definitely seems like the endings of all the pieces are meant to transition to the next thing that's going to happen. So yes. the end of the the end of the tango, mm -hmm. it's setting up for the waltz. The end of the waltz is setting up for the ragtime piece. The end of the ragtime clearly is meant to be a hesitation before the next one. So it's it's not like he's really ever intending to end. Right. Mm -hmm. Nailed it. Thank you, Hunter. That was perfect. And let's talk about the next movie. Has to happen every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he gets that's how he gets paid the big bucks around here. Oh yeah. Podcast money. Um, we're going to talk about the dance of the devil. Oh my goodness! Yes. Oh my goodness! My movement. <laughs> Your movement. I'm so glad that you said that, Belle, because it is. Uh, insane. <laughs> Help me break down some of these crazy passages that you have. To oh my gosh! I I wish I could. It's just kind of like when I when I played this, it was kind of like we we started. And I was like, okay, see you at the end. Hope we get there at the same time. And we did. It's like, you just kind of black out. This is very uh, difficult. But besides it being difficult, I think it also really fits into the... I, I don't know. I just feel that this is kind of the climax of the whole the whole story. I feel like this is the climactic movement. of the, This is almost the pessimistic, the devil wins um kind of movement and that's yeah. why it's just loaded with angst and lots of fast notes because it's just everything that's bad in the world in one clarinet up part look at rehearsal five both of you in oh yeah <laughs> like why does he do that to yeah you? like yeah. what is this triplet thing he's doing that's just who does that <laughs> And again, it's deceiving because you really think you're supposed to listen to just eighth notes to get the beat, but that is just not true because it's very confusing what's happening underneath you. And Val, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have to go across the bridge to finish out the passage at the end there. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 right? I wish it was chromatic. It would be a lot easier if it was just chromatic, you know? Yeah, all the way down. Well, you know, what's funny is you mentioned chromaticisms. Uh, there are in uh, some of the other parts, mm -hmm. like the whole the whole uh, phrase might not be chromatic, but there's a lot of chromatic movement in it, which mm -hmm. like 
throws you from where you're expect, of course, where you where you would expect it to go. But there's like a half step here, a half step there, which takes you out of the key signature because there really is no key signature. And then, you know, you go back to the somewhat regular pattern with the with all the sharps going down in that run. It's just there it, the atonality. I don't even know if you could call it atonal, but I guess I'll say atonal for lack of a better word. Um, it's very off-putting. Right. Yeah, I I wouldn't know if it's so much atonality versus everybody's got a different pitch setter, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the fact that, like, you're right, it, there are lots of chromatic moments, but he never actually uh, completes a chromatic scale. No. Or he never actually completes a idea. He, he, like, starts in one idea and he establishes something and he never actually completes it. And even in the little nuances, like the little run at, at rehearsal five in the clarinet part, you know, even is an example of this theme that he has of just leaving everything open-ended, just wanting to leave this whole story open-ended. Even though this is like the devil's victory, it's mm -hmm. still, there's still always that, is it though, you know, what's actually going on here? Right. There's he's like the, else, you know, he's like the music, you know, he's the ultimate musician's ADHD composer. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent way. Right. Can I can I also point point attention to guys or something? He ends at the what same way no. that he. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm just I know. <laughs> All right. Well, no. I, I was just gonna say he ends the this movement the same way he does the three dances. Uh, yeah. Well, let's see. I suppose he does. Yeah. What do you think? Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Why does he do that? Um, looking toward the future. Know. I think he's looking toward the future. Yeah. Right? Again, it's that. Yeah. You mean because it's open? There's there. It's not finite. Right. Like the devil can do whatever he wants. That's right. That's right. Let's yeah. go check out some chorales. Let's check out the grand chorale. Of course, we have the petite chorale. Then we have one of my favorite movements, the devil song. Yep. So freaking amazing. We could talk about that forever, but let's get to the Grand Corral. What do we think about the Grand Corral, folks? I always thought that it was really funny that this came right after the intensity and fever dream that is the Devil's Dance. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I always thought that it's funny that it's like we do all that. It's almost like Stravinsky is giving the musicians a chance to go, okay. Freeze. Collect yourself. Collect yourself. <laughs> and we're fine. I mean, I know that's probably not the case. I don't think Stravinsky was particular about things like that. But um, I don't know. It, the The notes in the score say, like, Im say embarrassment. And it's slow. And I wonder if this is just the whole coming down from the high of the climax. The devil's dances. The devil wins. And everybody knows it, including the soldier. And now it's like the corral to me is the regret mm. about about um, about taking the deal in the first place. You know, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, very lamentful. Very lamentful. Yes, it's it's happy, but it's sad though. You know, 
-hmm. You know, I struggle this struggle with this myself with understanding happy versus sad. You know, there's there's something that deals with duality here mm -hmm. that that talks about how when something still feels good, it really doesn't. You know, there's there's still a bad side to what's gonna happen. And when we know that, you know, it's very uh, maybe a little nostalgic, but also still sad, you know, because he knows that the end is coming, you know. Right. Well, I mean, that's that sort of, you know, there's an old adage about that, right? For everything gained, something lost. Right. So, you know, in this case, I wouldn't say anything was gained, really, but it's the same idea. I think I agree with that, too. And then we end with the triumphal march of the devil. Nothing says good times like marching devils. Like exactly. a triumphant, triumphant march yeah. of the devil. That's right. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite moments, Val, in this is um, I got um, a lot of different people to do this. And my friend, well, Mimi got to play the devil. Um, my friend Cameron, who came on the show, uh, Hunter, you got to beat him a little bit. Mm -hmm. He played the soldier. And one of my favorite things is that there was a guy, his name was Benjamin Stainer, who was my uh, director of. Um, my director of uh, of the actors, and the last scene is that everything just turned red, and Mimi came out of these doors in Nab, and everything was red, and she gestured to Cam and said, "Come with me," and that's the way the show ended. That's cool. Yeah, I, that's yeah, that's pretty intense. I so I wanted to ask you both because this movement is penultimate you know do we get a definite end at this movement or do we not well it's it's interesting because if you read like the story without the music it kind of establishes that the devil wins but then the music is what adds this element of does he though <laughs> because it, it's like I think that this is setting up the soldier for the fact that, you know, he's just always going to have this experience as part of him. And he's always going to have, I guess, the devil, whatever that means, whatever that means. Maybe it's the actual devil or maybe it's like just uh, the memory. Um, he's always going to have that as a part of him. And that could be like the open-endedness of that the music provides. That could be what kind of open-ended, because it's like his life is never gonna be the same. Mm. But does that declare the devil the winner? Mm. Well, I suppose we don't know, because we don't really know anything about what his new life is gonna be. Right, yeah. Which I guess in that regard goes with what Sean was saying and, and, and what I had said before, which is something gained, something lost you know, he might have lost to the devil. And if we don't know what his life is going to bring, will this experience help him in some way? Not make the same decisions, you know? Yeah, or is it about to get a lot worse? Like it doesn't necessarily right. have to be an optimistic open end. It could be a pessimistic open end. I think it's it's meant to be just that, a very open ending. And we truly just don't know, you mm -hmm. know? We, we truly just don't know what's next. Ambiguity is a great start to understanding the, the, the universe as a whole. 
-hmm. you know, asking questions and discovering new things about the universe is definitely something that we can take away from this work. Um, you and I have been very lucky to play this. Um, yeah, I love the fact that I was able to tell you about it and you were like, oh, I got to do it too. And I was like, well, this experience has changed me so much because I have never had to work with actors before. I hadn't had to work with a staging director before and work with, you know, a full ensemble in this capacity before. It is incredible. Um, the writing is incredible for this. The just and if I can sort of go off one tangent, the theme of this, I believe, is about shell shock. Okay, yeah. I think that's what it's supposed to be about, yeah. I think and so, too. It's, and when Stravinsky came out with this, he was heavily criticized for this work. But, Hunter, what do I like to say about Stravinsky? He doesn't give an F. He, that's right. He doesn't <laughs> give a fuck. That's right. And he just really doesn't care. He gave his opinions about war. He knows what they are. You know, he thinks they're dumb. You know, there's really no point to fighting. And then someone willing to kind of, and, and, and it almost in a way feels like the soldier is putting all its trust into the devil at first because he trusts that if he does this, then that's what he gets. And then he sees everything that he's become and then he is traumatized by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is the same thing as shock shock. So. Yeah, that's certainly Does anyone else want to make a quick point before we uh, close this segment out? Uh, just that I think an another way to describe this, if I had to sum this whole thing up in one sentence, it would be, you know, things are not what they appear. I mm. think that's, that's a lot of also what the message is, is that things are not what they appear. Some things that look like a good idea are not a good idea. And some things that seem wrapped up are not wrapped up. Right. And that kind of thing. Right. Hunter, you want to make a final statement? It's definitely a, a piece that if I, I think everyone should have to, at some point, either play in or listen to. You know what I mean? You should have some exposure to the piece. Even if you don't particularly like it, you should, um, you should experience it. Right. Because it gives you a lot of clarity and almost... In the ugliness, we find the beauty of life, you know, and I think that's worth saying and something that Travinsky firmly believed in. Um, so, Val, thank you so much for being here for the fourth time. It is thank so, you so much catching up with you, but we are not done with you yet. Ooh, what We're next? Not done with yet. We have a clarinet quiz for you. <laughs> An so extension of the prior clarinet quizzes. That is correct. And if you don't mind sticking around, we will be right back. So don't go away. All right, and we are back with Val, and we are on part three of our little uh, little Stravinsky talk here, but this will have nothing to do with Stravinsky. And it's a little clarinet quiz, which we've done before. However, we have a couple of extra uh, other questions, I'll say. One you might remember from the other time. The rest, though, I don't believe we've asked you. So are you ready, Val? I think so. Let's see. Let's okay. hope I do well on this. That would be embarrassing if I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So question number one is, what do you call the piece that keeps the reed on the mouthpiece? 
The ligature. Very nice. Congratulations, you got the first one. Phew. <laughs> All right, and actually because of the lag, what I heard was the ligature. <laughs> I was second guessing myself. Exactly, I was like, she was thinking about it. Um, <laughs> all right, the clarinet uh, consists of three registers, and what do they call those registers? We have the Shalumo register in mm -hmm. the, the lowest register, and then we have the clarion and the altissimo. Bravissima, very nice. I feel like people always forget that first one. I feel like no one knows that one, but you know. I'm pretty sure I say it wrong, but that's just kind of how I've been. And I don't know another way to say it. <laughs> I mean, just looking at it, it looks like Shalomo. Yeah, <laughs> but it does. I, it sounds like right. I, I couldn't tell you, though. I don't speak French, so I'm not sure. Um, I could have Gabby, my sister. She took French in high school. She could throw something at me if I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> All right. Numero tre. What do you, or rather, what does it mean when clarinetists say they are going over the break? Ah, it means they are going from a B flat, which just requires two fingers, the little A key and the register key, to throwing all of their fingers down um, exactly. to hitting a B natural. It is a very difficult thing for students and and adults sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're playing, you know that passage in in Stravinsky where you have to, where it was that massive rundown. Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely. Very good. All right. You're three for three. <laughs> Number four. It's more of a not theory but theoretical question. If you have to play a clarion register E. Or sorry, E flat. My bad. I I wrote the question and still read it wrong. If you have to play a clarion register E flat, which C should you use if you have to go from E flat to C? Oh, I see. Yeah, you play your C on the left hand and your E flat on the right hand, unless you have one of those fancy clarinets with an extra E flat key. But honestly, even if I had one of those, I can't reach it. So <laughs> I would play I would play the uh, left hand C to prepare for that. Don't Very like sliding nice. if I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So for those who don't know, clarinet does a lot of left-right uh, alternating. And if you have a normal clarinet like most of us, um, you have to, you can only play E-flat one way. And therefore, you must play, or not must, I suppose you don't have to. You should play the left side C key. Very good. And last but not least... Who invented the clarinet? Who is the recognized inventor of the clarinet as we know it? I actually don't remember his name. It was, uh... wow, you got me. I actually don't remember his name off the what top of my head. What country was he from? <laughs> uh, Germany, it was a German. He was yeah, a German. Right? He had a yeah, first, wow. it was first middle and last name. Oh my gosh, Hunter, I'm actually drawing a blank. <laughs> His name is like the most German sounding name ever. It is, he was a, he's an instrument maker, right? Mm-hmm. Would you like to, would you like his initials? I would love his initials. J-C-D. Wow, I might have to, 
Middle name is a character from Frozen. Character from Frozen. Should have watched Frozen. <laughs> oh, okay, that wouldn't help you then. <laughs> um. Yeah, I can tell you every clarinetist that brought their instruments to him, but I could not, I am not thinking <laughs> of his name right now. <laughs> I might have to ask you for this one and take the four out of five. Going once? Going twice? Give up? I think I give up. Yeah, his name was Johann Christoph Denner. That's right. Yeah. It sure was. <laughs> yep, Johann Christoph Denner. Although I'm curious, I don't know the people who brought their instruments to him. Oh, well, it's just like anybody who wanted an extra key on their clarinet brought it to Denner, and Denner was like, all right, let's figure out where we could put that and then drill some holes. <laughs> and sure, we'll kinda... just mold new keys yeah. on. I had a flashback, though. I haven't thought about Denner since my, my oral exam and my master's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I think I heard his name once, and then... I, I actually, I had to go look it up before, so I wouldn't feel bad because I didn't remember. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's right. just kind of when it was being invented. Everybody who wanted an extra key asked him for an extra key, and he was like, okay, sure. Interesting. I wonder what keys were missing. <laughs> yeah, it was just an instrument maker at the right place at the right time. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes that's all it takes, right, for inventors, right place, right time, and they got gold. <laughs> All right, well, Val, thank you so much. You did very well, and it was a very enjoyable time talking about Soldier's Tale with you and Sean. And uh, I thank you for being on, our, our platinum member that you are. Um, so with that, I shall leave you, say have a nice weekend and all yada, 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 no COVID, safe, <laughs> and thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you guys Sean? so much for having me. Great to be back. All right, Val. Got to come back. Got to get that diamond jacket. Yes, definitely. Number Anytime. Five. Coming back soon. All right, pal. Take care. You too. Thank you very much, Stravinsky, for your genius composition and the legacy that you have left on music. I am Hunter Sagona. And I am Sean Ramkunis, and as I like to say, K-L-T-W-Y-L, keep listening to what you love, and see you next time.